So you're still here. Nice to see you. I was just noticing walking outside a bit. Uh, yeah, teaching's still a little bit of an edge for me. Can put my mind into a mood. So interesting to see these moods come. Mind states come and go. So easy for a thought to arise. What am I doing? Why am I here? Am I becoming more sane or more crazy on these retreats? <laughs> so I thought I'd off, offer a few reflections about the practice just to give <clears throat> some more grounding in terms of what we're doing. And then we'll move into question and answer together. I'd like to speak a little bit about the views and practice. And Andre has spoken a little bit on this level. Uh, one of the key ways that we might think of right view, or how to use right view in our practice, is really this quality of the wisdom factor of mind. Oftentimes in our practice, we become very technique oriented that it's easy to leave aside our own wisdom or intelligence. We forget how to consider what we're looking at through the lens of the Dhamma. And our habitual mind tends to view experience through the lens of I, my mood, my thought, I can't bear this, or this is great, this is amazing, belongs to me, this is never going to change. So views of permanence, views of self, and these are just the normal conditioning that we have in the mind, normal views that uh, it's the nature of the way the mind sees the world. It's the basic functioning of delusion, confusion. And those words tend to, I think, before we understand what they mean in the Dharma, they sound very heavy. Uh, I'm not deluded. I don't want to be a deluded person. Or confusion. No one likes to consider themselves confused. But from the lens of the Dhamma, the basic understanding is that the mind is meeting every moment with some qualities that are either based in delusion or based in wisdom. And unless we are fully awakened, completely free from those seeds of greed, hatred, and delusion, that we will tend to meet what's arising through those patterns that the Buddha was pointing to as being the cause of suffering. And when there's greed, clinging, wanting, and when there's aversion, not liking, judging, frustration, 
And when there's ideas of self, things belong to oneself, self-fuse, I'm no good, ideas of shame, and thoughts about the self that we mistaken as being who we are rather than simply thoughts arising. I started that sentence and I don't know where it started. (laughs) Where was I going? Uh, So these are habits of mind. The power of right view, this orientation, which is really part of our practice, that awareness can arise with or without our wisdom and seeing things as nature, is that we have an opportunity to see things as being what they are that it becomes easier to be with a difficult mood. It's easier to be with a mind that's sleepy. It's easier to be with repetitive thoughts, difficult emotions, when we see it as nature, when we see it as being simply a cause and effect process that's conditioned because of conditions. This is what's arising this state is what's arising. This habit of thought is what's arising. This way of relating to myself is what's being experienced. It's so interesting that when we walk around nature in the woods, there's some beautiful trees here, we have a tendency to relate to it in the right way. We observe the way things are. We don't go up to the tree and say, you know, this branch should really, really belongs over here. And if these leaves were just shifted a little bit, they would look prettier on this tree. And if this shrub would just stand up a little bit, that would look better. And if those birds could move over there, that would, that would be more appropriate. We tend to just receive the world the way it is, a sense of receptivity interest. If we want to know the natural world, we sit there and we watch, we let it unfold. But our tendency when we look inward, when we experience the world through our own sense doors, the tendency is we observe with a lot of defilements. And defilements in this sense are just those habit patterns which lead to suffering. It's the nature of defilements. It's not that they're bad, it's simply that they lead to suffering. And if we really want to understand what is it that leads to suffering, what is it that leads to a sense of well-being and ease, we have to get interested in the mind, in the heart. It's ceaselessly amazing to my mind that a little drop of right view in my own experience can turn my relationship to what I'm experiencing is to one that I'm struggling with, identified with, being hurt by, to then the mind getting interested. Oh, this is a mood. 
It's being resisted and judged. It's being identified with. That's what's happening. It's the power of bringing in wise reflection. And if we only hear the instructions that we're meant to pay attention to our breath or the body, we're missing the element of wisdom, the element of right view, which the Buddha placed right in the beginning of the Noble Eightfold Path. Right view is the first path factor of the eight path factors. With right view, we know how to look at reality, the way things are, to gain insights, to gain the wisdom. It's not that we're creating the Dharma. The Dharma is always happening. It's always been happening. It's like gravity. It's always happening. We don't always realize that gravity is a force that's operating, holding us to the floor right now. But it's there. That's why we're all sitting on the floor rather than on the ceiling. So the Dhamma is like that. It's always operating. And yet, unless we know how to look at our experiences, we're missing in every moment the chance to grow our wisdom, grow some understanding. So viewing things as nature. Thoughts are simply thoughts. They're not good or bad. Pain in the body when we're sitting. No one likes pain. But pain is doing its job. It's unpleasant. How is the mind relating to the pain? So then we can learn how the tendency of the mind, the habit of mind, that when there's unpleasant, it comes with aversion. The tendency is every unpleasant experience is met with aversion. Oh, look at that. That's interesting. Unless we look, it's automatic. We miss that precious insight. And then we experience something pleasant. And there's liking in the mind. Again, if we're not interested, they seem as if they're the same thing. Pleasant and liking are the same. And that's what delusion says. With interest, we can start to feel into our experience, notice it. There's pleasant. How is the mind relating to this moment? What happens when the pleasant changes? When the pleasant mind state that's out of our control, it's arising because conditions are there. How does the mind relate to the changing moment? The body is not in our control. None of us want to age, get sick, feel unpleasant experiences. And our suffering can arise when we are not in alignment with the way things are. And the encouragement of the Dharma is this interest, the interest that frees the mind. Because these factors of mind arise independently of what's arising, 
there's a possibility of being free. It's possible to be in a body that's changing, that gets sick, gets hurt, and to meet it with interest, with openness, gaining his wisdom and insights as we go through our life. Just seeing things as nature, causes and conditions coming together over and over again. Moods will come and go. Mindfulness will come and go. Sleepiness will come and go. When we see these things as being part of natural, the natural world, the natural aspects of the mind, we have an easier time relating to it through this wise attention, receptivity. Can I be with this? It's a question that's helped me a lot. It's, can I be with this? Is this okay to be with? And when I see it as what's arising, I can open to something that's there, unknown, or that's new. The mind can, can be there. So another piece of the practice I'd like to just speak a minute about is the power of continuity. And if we really wish for the Dharma to become kind of integrated in our lives rather than something that we go and do once in a while, but it's how we live, living with this sense of interest in the heart that's open, receptive. How do we not restrict our practice to good states of mind or to ideas of the sitting practice? And this is where the uh, understanding what right effort really implies or involves that the effort in practice is much more one of understanding what mindfulness is rather than a intense energy of doing something or creating something. Then when we understand that our job is really to recognize in a way that allows us to be with what's there, the energy that's required is very light this is one thing that Sayadaw Utejaniya would often say is, if you're getting tense or tired by the end of the day, it's a clear sign that the, the energy that one is putting in is being motivated by some wanting or some aversion, too much doing. But the energy really is one of this light touch, light tapping, as Andre was describing it. It's interesting how we all come up with our own metaphors. Uh, for me, my metaphor was, we think of it, the energy that it takes to push a swing. And we all know that, you know, really to push a swing, a child on a swing, we don't run up and back with a swing. That would be exhausting. We would be able to do that for a certain amount of time. And yet when you're applying the right amount of energy, it's just the lightest touch and you can stay there uh, perpetually. You, know, you can really be there in a way that's not tiring and the swing gains momentum. Right, so that's really understanding the nature of mindfulness, this quality that simply knows what's happening. And I like to uh, 
just mention that, that that word sati, which is where mindfulness, the Pali word sati, and I think uh, said so that its root, one of its meanings can mean to remember. And it's not to remember the past, but it's simply to remember what's happening. What's happening in this moment? When we relate to mindfulness in a way that's about remembering, rather than keeping or holding on, staying with, it's a much lighter energy that's required. We begin to recognize the nature of mindfulness, how it functions, how effortless mindfulness itself as a faculty is. It simply knows the experience. And that our, our job then becomes really one of the sense of perseverance. This as the mind naturally loses momentum to drop in another reminder of what's happening. And the point of the mindfulness and the awareness is not as an end in itself, it's really to reveal the nature of our experience. So we can start to see more clearly the attitudes in the mind. What is it that leads to the sense of stress, of dukkha? And through wise attention that we can really learn about our experience. It doesn't interfere with experience. It doesn't have an agenda. It's this soft receptivity, just noticing the way it is. And nothing is barred. Quality of mindfulness can receive every type of experience. And it can really feel like a sense of homecoming when you really orient to mindfulness in that way, that everything is allowed. It's simply being known. Nothing to hold back, nothing's wrong. Just the way experience is in this moment. So just to say practice is so precious, precious opportunity. And it's very easy to try to overdo it, become too serious. Sometimes I feel like when I'm speaking, I can't tell if I'm offering settling words because some, some the faces can look very serious. It's the way the face looks when it's more relaxed, it looks serious. And the spirit of practice, um, It's really this, it's really an invitation, you know, just to be with ourselves. And we can do this all the time without getting too serious because if the mind gets serious, the tendency is for tension to build. And just noticing if there's tension, what is the mind doing? Tension also has a cause. That's the beautiful thing about the Dharma. It's so lawful. If there's a sense of ease and freedom, 
What's the mind doing? Where's the cause? There's suffering. What's the mind doing? Is there a thought that's being believed? Can we just notice the thought as a process rather than follow the story? Getting interested in the nature of experience. So, I'll pause here and we'll open it up for any questions or comments, confusions, insights by day one. (laughs) How are things going? Yeah. Uh, Sometimes um, I'm aware, like I ask myself, am I aware? Mm -hmm. And I'm aware, but I don't know of what. I'm just aware. That's not always the case, but sometimes I don't know So the question, the the comment was that in asking that question, am I aware? And that Andrea has been mentioning, am I aware? Is the mind aware? There's this feeling that the mind is aware, but oftentimes of what is not yet clear. I've had that many times. I think, you know, one of the things that when we're maybe shifting a little bit towards this side of getting familiar, not only of the object that's being known, but that the awareness is also there knowing the object. So we're shifting our attention a little bit towards the awareness as well. We get, you know, a lot, excuse me, a lot of our practice is so familiar with the object, the breath, the sensation in the body, the mood, the thinking. As we become aware of the awareness, there is this sense of feeling what this quality of awareness feels like. And it's just a little bit shaky at first of knowing what is the awareness knowing. And if you can simply recognize at times, oh, it's sort of not clear in this moment. Oh, it's not clear. So there's a sense of awareness and what it's knowing is not necessarily clear. An investigation that I've explored a lot was what was leading me into the sense of sloth and torpor or sleepiness. And one of the things that often preceded it was I was knowing, and the mind was aware of a sense of calm, but I forgot to really notice that I was aware of the calm. And so it was almost as like I I stopped being very clear what the mind was being aware of. And as soon as I reminded myself, calm is being known. Not much, you know, not many fireworks are happening. Oh, that's what's happening. So there's a sense of the awareness, knowing this, this is what's there. Another way to look at it is, you know, if we're, if we're let's say in a fog or misty day and you try to see you know, the details of the trees, the forest, how strenuous that is. But as we simply recognize, oh, this is the way it looks right now. There's a sense of the mist, a little bit of shapes and outlines, and that's what's being known. Right? And really over time, as you support the quality of the mindfulness that's 
you know, showing up moment after moment, what's being known gets refined so that the quality of the, you know, the quality of the awareness will pick up the type of objects that are there. You know, so in the beginning, what we tend to know is very pronounced things, but we really get better and better as the, as the quality of mindfulness gets more stable and the continuity is building. Very refined experiences, more subtle uh, attitudes of mind get revealed. The views that are in the mind get revealed. And that's simply through the, the mindfulness getting stable. And it's a little bit like when we walk into a dark room and, you know, right away there's nothing, you can't really see much. And yet what do you do? All you have to do is spend some time in the room and the eyes begin to adjust. And then we can see more of the, you know, we see what's in there. We see that there's a chair here and there's a bed over there. And the mind, you know, the eyes have gotten clear. So the same way the mindfulness is picking up what it can in that moment. If it, it's not clear, just recognizing, oh, it's not clear. And calm is also an object. And oftentimes when calm is happening, we simply forget calm is being known. And the power of this practice is you can maintain a continuity of mindfulness when calm is being known. Because you're really learning how to identify the, the, this quality of mindfulness, that that's being present. And the way that I explored that, that particular thing early on was when my mind, when the mindfulness had gotten weak and I had been lost in you know, thinking and stories and then the mindfulness would come back, it was so clear that this quality of mindfulness was back. But when I was in mindfulness, it was sometimes harder to identify, but in contrast to those periods when there wasn't mindfulness, I really began to be able to distinguish what this factor of mindfulness really felt like. And then just having confidence that it sees more and more. Yeah, just a few um, elaborations perhaps on this question. I've also been in this state many times where it's clear that I'm aware, but not so clear what I'm aware of. And so, you know, really just some validation of that state. It's, it's not uh, a mistake. It's not, it's not a problem. And as a, I thought that, that was a great analogy about going into a dark room and, you know, taking the time to just begin to see what's there. There's a couple of pieces around it that I've understood for myself. One is that sometimes um, when we are aware, when there is awareness, it is aware of something. There's always an object, and always an experience that awareness is aware of. And yet, because we're being more receptive here, um, awareness may be attuned to something that we're not so familiar with. Each, each um, moment of mindfulness has a kind of a natural affinity to some particular experience or, or object. And some of those objects, some of those experiences, especially as the mind settles, some of those experiences are ones that we're not familiar with. And so if we have the idea in our minds, you know, it's like, oh, what am I aware of? There should be something clear or precise that I should be aware of. Um, And and Alexis was pointing to this with the, the, the broader states of mind, the sleepiness, the calm. So often when we, uh, 
explore, okay, what am I aware of? We think it's supposed to be something precise. I'm aware of a pressure or I'm aware of a very clear emotion. There's a sense that we think that what we are aware of is supposed to be clear. It's supposed to be, we're supposed to be able to put box lines around it and know exactly what it is. And more and more what I've seen with the receptive nature of awareness, the receptive nature of mindfulness, and the um, willingness to just be present and say, oh, there's mindfulness and what's here. Many things that we could never even think to look for begin to get revealed. And it does take that patience to be willing to sit in the dark room and let the eyes attune. So Alexis's instruction, just be patient. There's awareness and it's not clear. It's not clear what what awareness is aware of. And just keep exploring it. Um, So, you know, that's just some of my own reflections on why it happens, that often there are uh, experiences that are unfamiliar happening, um, or that we have an agenda as to what, we have an agenda as to what we should know when we're mindful, something precise, something clear. And so this begins to uh, shake up those assumptions and those um, agendas that we have in our mindfulness. Can we just sit and be aware and recognize, okay, there is something that's being known, but I don't know what it is. So that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to alternate, taking the first part, so I'll start this time. The, what you're pointing to basically is what I would call the discernment. I wouldn't use the word judgment, but wisdom discerns. Wisdom, wisdom is not passive. It's, it's, yeah, this is, this is not clear. This is not helpful. That is the function of wisdom. It's, uh, as wisdom gets stronger, we actually experience wisdom choosing, wisdom deciding or ch- or making choices and but it happens it's interesting it happens in a it can happen in a 
not in a way that it feels like I'm making that choice, but there's a, a sense of understanding this direction. Now, I remember at one point I was observing, um, observing the mind and noticing that a thought had arisen and there was a kind of a, an inclination to, it was a thought about somebody that I had been angry with and there was a kind of an inclination to jump on that thought and think more thoughts to get angry. But the mind having spent an, a lot of time in the exploration of the experience of anger and knew very deeply that way lies suffering. The experience was that the mind just let go of that direction like it would let go of a touching a hot pot on a stove because the system understands that way lies suffering and so for me it didn't feel like I said oh that's not useful I should not do that it felt like the mind said let go it just let go it 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 just the wisdom the experience was wisdom let go so it didn't have the feeling of me doing and there's a kind of a big gray area in the middle where um, it feels like I am choosing, I am deciding, you know, I am, I am, uh, you know, in the mix, that there's a sense of self in the mix, choosing or deciding, well, do I like take a nap this afternoon or do I go to the hall and sit? You know, it, it's kind of a sense of, of being in there. Um, and there is an agency, there is an agency that we have, and often I will say that if it feels like we have a choice, make a skillful one, if we have that capacity, if we can make a choice, but it's really, really helpful to understand, and this is where, you know, wise view comes in to understand, you know, what's the motivation behind making that choice? When there's a sense of self involved, it's really helpful to understand Am I making that choice because I feel like I should do that? Because there's a sense of, um, you know, maybe something else is happening that I want to avoid, so I want to, you know, do this instead. So understanding the motivation, this is, this is a big part of how wisdom grows. You know, so it's not simply about, you know, some kind of uh, arbitrary um, you know, this is good, this is bad, <laughs> you know, I should sit, I shouldn't, um, I shouldn't take a nap, you know, some, some idea about what I should do, but to really feel into and understand the conditions and what's motivating the choice. Because there are times when it's appropriate to take a nap, <laughs> depending on the conditions, depending on the circumstances. So we need to explore at a deeper level, you know, the, the, the motivations behind the choices. And as we begin to see those, we begin to, we begin to experience when there is greed, aversion in the heart as it's making a choice, there's a contraction. You know, there's, there's a visceral sense often that way is not conducive to well-being. And that's where wisdom grows, right there. But it's not passive, you know, it, ver it feels very dynamic. Do you want to add anything? Did you have a follow-up? You seem... Oh, I was just... Uh, I mean, I agree. It's really wonderful when, when wisdom just naturally lets things fall away. But there's also times when the defilements can, can be seductive. 
doesn't, but you know it's leading to sometimes self-righteous anger. You know, okay, I, I feel self-righteous. I can stay with this anger because I'm right. You know, that's that's still a defilement. It's a defilement masquerading as righteousness or, or um, sexual fantasy. This can just be there. Oh, well, this is sounds pretty good, but it's going to lead to something. To, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, th- and this is, I think, in our practice, we we really do over time become more and more skilled in being with our with our experience in a way that both yields understanding and itself is a, a reflection of the quality of our mind. And I think, you know, our practice would really die out if we simply kept doing the same thing over and over again, it, you know, with our practice. But because wisdom grows, because the quality of the continuity of mindfulness can grow, our practice is continuing to unfold. You know, in something like wisdom, it's said that there are these different qualities of wisdom that at first... There's simply the hearing of it, you know, the reading, sutta mayapanya, right? So that level where we, we know it because we've heard it and that's okay. So we use that wisdom. So right view, for example, we may, may not see our own mind as nature, but we have enough confidence to say, okay, well, let me try that out. Let me just test this and see if I just see anger as anger rather than I am angry. Oh, it's just anger. What happens if I see it as anger? Oh, I can get interested maybe. Rather than having to change it, I can start to get interested in it. Okay, so there's that level of wisdom. We're using that, what we've heard. And then we can really start to think about it and it becomes intellectually, yeah, that seems to make sense. So then the the wisdom is really beginning to kind of get integrated. And then, then the third level, they say, is the level of the insight where we have truly seen the nature of reality. And that wisdom now is unshakable because we have directly understood and experienced. But there's plenty of things that we know intellectually this is not the right way, even though the habit of mind may be leading us down that path. You have plenty of habits of mind, you know, where shame, self-use, that are so strong and seductive in the thoughts. And I have seen it enough times and that level of wisdom is there to know don't follow that. It's just a thought. It's not powerful enough insight that the habit changes, but I know well enough not to feed it because that story is so seductive to create this sense of self that then suffers. You know, so I can see how the wisdom is, is growing around different areas of the mind. Yeah, yeah. Good job. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's like sort of this full acceptance, there's nothing to be done, it's just the note that it's there. You know, sometimes um, 
like in the body, if something is really, really painful, one thing I might do is do like a um, pressure point, which can be very painful, but I also know that the outcome is not necessarily painful. So even though in the moment it might be really uncomfortable and, and that, there's still more of a steadiness in the mind mm. because of the intention, I think, of why I'm doing it. So I guess what I'm asking is, um, or what I'm exploring, and I guess I'm getting more curious about it, is um, when is equanimity, and I don't hear it talked about a lot so mm-hmm. far in doing this practice, um, when does that come up? And equanimity with like unpleasant and pleasant, does that still mean there's still aversion there? And there's something to look deeper about? Or do you just sit with it as sometimes, sort of, um, just sit with it as, and not necessarily make it into like aversion or, or mm-hmm. uh, I'm not being totally clear. Uh, clear enough for me to understand, I feel like. So we'll see if I hit, hit something that's relevant. Um, did anyone not hear the question? Do I repeat it for them? Um, maybe just briefly. Okay, so just pointing out, exploring different types of aversion and a little bit the question around equanimity in this practice, uh, whether or not aversion is still there when there is an unpleasant experience. Uh, so that territory. Um, is unpleasantness aversion, right? Is it necessarily? And it sounds like you're you are exploring that. And the best way to answer those kinds of questions, really, if the Dhamma is real, we really ought to come to the same conclusions. (laughs) I hope, (laughs) (laughs) which is one of the great safety things. As a teacher, you could just say, "Keep practicing." (laughs) That's the ultimate answer: is just keep keep watching. Um, yeah, and it's helpful to have theory in the mind so that when experiences arise, it, you know, it melds or it, it kind of, oh, yeah, I've heard that before and that seems to really click now. Um, th- you know, the nature of a wholesome mind state is it's, this, that quality of mind itself is wholesome. So mindfulness, when it's right mindfulness, and wisdom is present. Those qualities are what they are. They are not aversion, right? They are not clinging. They are what they are. There may be a subtle clinging and aversion that can arise because the mind is so quick and there's trillions of mind moments that are happening all the time, so it can feel as if these things arise together. But as we become clear about these qualities, they really do stand out as, oh, mindfulness? is perfect. It does its own thing. Aversion is perfect in the sense that it is perfectly aversive. It doesn't like it, it's aversive. And liking or clinging is perfect, it clings. And all these mind states are perfect manifestations is the way they are. And some will lead to suffering and some lead to the end of suffering. So I would say explore. Um, and honestly, I have heard different people say different things about the nature of Vedana, of 
the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, that the feeling tones in the mind, as the mind is meeting what's arising with right mindfulness, no defilements, that will be met with equanimity. And at that moment, there is no unpleasantness in the mind. And, you know, Vedana is a uh, mind function. So, uh, that it's not imbued in the object itself, it's how the mind's relating to the experience. And the question is, can we experience its sense of unpleasantness even when the mind is equanimous? And that can be, that's the question. You look and see, what does it mean when the mind is deeply equanimous? Can it sense this, this feeling of unpleasantness without any aversion? And uh, you can dive in a little bit. Yeah. So a couple of things. I mean, as with Alexis, I've heard different theories about this question of um, if there is unpleasantness, does it necessarily mean there is some reactivity? And one of the one of the uh, clarifications of this in, is in the Abhidhamma that, and actually the Buddha. The Buddha says this too. The Buddha says. In his description around Vedana, he said, an arhant experiences pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. An ordinary person experiences pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. What's the difference between them? And his response is, when an arhant experiences, well, he starts with the ordinary person. When the ordinary person experiences pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, he or she reacts to it. When an unpleasant experience arises, there's the, you know, beating one's breast and weeping and moaning and wailing and feeling distraught and aversive. When an arhant experiences an unpleasant sensation, it said an arhant experiences an unpleasant sensation. And so in the suttas, the Buddha describes a person who's fully awakened experiencing pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. The Abhidhamma clarifies a little more depth around that, that the uh, pleasant, unpleasant sensation that an arhant would feel would be bodily, pleasant, unpleasant, physical. You know, you cut yourself with a knife, the body is designed to feel pain. An arhant will feel unpleasant sensation if cut with a knife. So, so there's that aspect of it. And then I have also heard that but in terms of mind states, that when the mind is truly free, that uh, there will not be unpleasant vedna, that uh, the somanasa dominasa are the mental uh, feeling tones, and that uh, dominasa, mental unpleasantness, the description of full awakening that the Buddha gives is there is no mental pain or grief. And so in the mind, free from that mental unpleasantness. Um, and so again, I think Alexis's suggestion, you know, 
I love that, you know, it's like if the Dhamma is true, you know, we'll come to the same conclusion. So, you know, <laughs> look, at, look in your experience and see, you know, how is it for you and keep, keep exploring. Um, the, the, the question about equanimity, where does equanimity come in this practice? Um, we talk a lot about right view, uh, balance of mind, non-reactivity. Those are all words that can be used as synonyms for equanimity. Um, and so when the mind is balanced, when it is seeing things just as they are, equanimity is present. So it's, it's, it's in there in kind of the, the underground. Yeah. And that, hello? You're right. Hello. Nope. Hello. <laughs> uh, the, the, the encouragement to check the attitude is also a lot about that exploration of how is the mind relating to this experience? Is it meeting it with aversion, with not liking, with clinging and attachment, or is it allowing it, as Andrew was saying, simply to be as it is? Is it meeting it with equanimity? That's really right mindfulness. So that's that. If we're not checking the mind, then it's very easy to be being mindful with an, an experience, but it is also accompanied with a lot of other qualities in the mind that we can easily overlook. So this is the, really the benefit of being able to look at the mind as well, to see how is it relating to this experience. Uh, kind of an observation, I guess, in terms of open awareness and you know, new situations or situations where, you know, new rules or kind of guidelines have been given, you know. Um, there's this kind of disproportionate, at least for myself, this, this open awareness of self and ego, you know. Am I washing my dish enough? Am I, you know, is my coughing, you know, bothering somebody else? Is, uh, you know, are others aware of, of me, you know, and that, that awareness and that I find myself, uh, you know, spending probably a disproportionate amount of time in the beginning of retreats, kind of thinking those things of, of uh, uh, yeah, where, where, where I'm seeing myself in the situation as opposed to seeing the situation and then myself within it. So, I mean, you're noticing what your mind does at the beginning of retreat. That's great. Huh. <laughs> mm -hmm. Do you notice that as you're noticing this disproportionate amount of, are people noticing I'm coughing? Am I doing this right? Am I following the rule? Are, are you noticing any stress? Um, yeah, a little bit. I mean, I wouldn't, yeah. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to be like really major, right, right, right. but it's worth looking at. It's like, you know, so that's what's arising. Curiosity about about that, it's like, Oh, look at that. There's tension as I have that thought. What, you know, can I be with that? Not to try to like somehow say I shouldn't be having those thoughts, but to be curious about, you know, like I, I, I said with the, you know, the wandering mind, when the mind goes off into thought, it creates a climate. It creates a landscape. What is the landscape that's created as the mind worries about what do other people think of me? Contraction, tightness a little bit of maybe uh, like scanning, 
you know, are people looking at me, you know, so, so that's what happens. Can you know that? Can you be aware of that? And if you, if you explore that, you'll find that over time the mind begins to let go of those patterns. And it sounds like you, you notice this familiarly at the beginning of retreat. It may tend to dissipate as the retreat goes, but it's what happens for you at the beginning of the retreat. Get curious about it, you know, especially when there are patterns. Get curious about the pattern and see what, there's something to learn from any experience. There's no experience that we can't learn from. It's an, it's an arising experience. In this case, there's a sense of self arising, a great opportunity for exploring the mind. You know, it doesn't have to be a huge, big, you know, full-blown, you know, identity, but just a sense of, ooh, are people looking at me? Ooh, what's that like? Right there. There's things to be known, things to be learned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just to me, it sounds like you're, you're, noticing, you're noticing more stuff. You're noticing more things about how your mind's operating, which is always, from the point of view of the Dharma, it's always good news. Maybe from the point of view of the ego, it's usually bad news, as they say. But um, this, I was just saying that Joseph Goldstein, he's known for a lot of pithy statements, and he has one statement says it doesn't matter. It's a double negative, so it doesn't matter to what you don't cling. And in this case, just shifting it a little bit, it doesn't matter. Well, it doesn't matter to what you are mindful of or what you are noticing. And maybe just a couple caveats. One would be, is the mind balanced? Can it be with this? How is it relating to it? And is it knowing the nature of it? That it's a thought, it's an image, it's an idea. Does it know know the process of what's happening, the reality, rather than if we're paying too much attention to the story, it very easily weakens the mindfulness because most likely the qualities of delusion and Attachment will get stronger when we pay attention to the story, the concepts. But again, as soon as we notice the Dharma, that's wisdom working. Oh, it's thinking. It's an idea. It's unpleasant or any aspect of the way things are. And we don't need to worry what we're noticing in this, in this kind of orientation because it's simply strengthening the mindfulness. And is it strengthening right view? Is it strengthening the wise attitude? And that's something that you can just check. One piece I'll just add is like there's a very big difference between um, noticing a thought around like so. So there's a difference between indulging in or kind of being caught in. Are they looking at me? Are they, are, are they bothered by my cough? Am I doing this right? There's a big difference between being caught by that and being aware of it as a phenomenon just knowing this is arising right now. They are vastly different things. One will lead to the cultivation of more of that pattern. The other leads to freedom. And so this is really how the practice works. You know, that we don't have to be afraid to meet with mindfulness our identifications, our uh, reactivity, when we are seeing it as this is what's happening right now. So when we see it with right view, it is the path to freedom. Mm. And actually we should probably 
stop. Is it a is it a short question? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Five questions. <laughs> so yeah, we should probably uh, stop. Did you want to say one last thing? Mm. You were touching on it. Just it, the practice really becomes very inviting when we get just getting curious and interested, which is really that wisdom aspect of the practice. And I noticed myself when I was, when I had the idea that I was really meant to just be watching my, you know, some aspect of my experience. So I was really limiting myself to what I was able to grow my wisdom from. I wasn't able to watch, you know, what we call personality, which is just the way we are. I didn't even want to look there because I, that was uncomfortable. You know, I'd much rather just stay with things that were in kind of in my comfort zone, but really as that quality of understanding that everything can be, be interesting when we're not taking it personally. And really that, that's that orientation of wise view, right view, is that we really can simply open to, how is this mind acting? You know, n- naming it more as a phenomenon. How is this mind? How is this heart feeling? when it comes into the hall. The first time I had to get on the platform at Spirit Rock, I hadn't sent a retreat there yet. And I was, you know, gonna have to be up there as someone offering some Dharma. And I went up there and there were only about 10 people that had already, they were just suddenly setting up and I was going up to put my shawl up on the platform. And I was a nervous wreck putting my shawl <laughs> on the platform. Now this is hopeless. All I'm doing is putting my, my shawl there, you know, and, and what's going on is just seeing the mind's tendency, you know, to think about the self. Everyone's watching me. I looked around, no one was watching me. <laughs> Every time I go into the dining room, everyone is watching me. I'm sure of it. And I look up and no one's watching me. Every time. <laughs> You know, as we become the center of how our, the whole world, we all do this. You know, it's just the nature of the mind. We're getting really interested. It's just, you know, it's playful. I love, that's a great way to end, playful. <laughs> I love that word. And uh, I, I love to think of it, let's play. Play with what's happening. Can it be a playful experience? Curiosity tends to create that sense of play. Yeah. So let's just be silent for a moment. Mm -hmm.